0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This week marks the beginning of Lent, a special time, of course, of reflection, of conversion, hopefully, for all of us. I was thinking, um, I've been thinking this week of how important it is to to focus on what's happening in the Ukraine, the the terrible toll of human suffering of of panic, of despair even, that must be going on in the hearts and the minds of the people who are losing their family members and seeing their homes blown up and their country destroyed, those who have fled. I think during Lent um, it, it might help us to, when, when we make our sacrifices and our penance and our fasting, to offer it up especially for the people of Ukraine who are giving us a real example of bravery in the face of the terrible aggression of of the russian government this week uh, we have a great show for you as we try to every single week later on in the hour we will have ed whalen from the ethics and public policy center on the new biden supreme court nomination of judge katanji brown jackson he will be telling us what kind of replacement she will be because i'm pretty sure she will be the replacement for justice Breyer. What that means for us as Americans, as Catholics, my friend and co-hostess and my colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, will be joining me also at the bottom of the hour to talk about the Women's Health Protection Act. I should say so-called Women's Health Protection Act. Um, which was defeated in the Senate, which is good news, but we should talk about it because it does give us a taste of just exactly how radical the pro-choice side is and exactly what they want to see legislatively. And really, all the Democrats signed up for it, with the exception of one, uh, Joe Manchin. And so this this has become this kind of radical abortion ideology where there is no holds barred of any kind, as we'll hear from Maureen, has become the the mainstream uh, on the Democrat side. So that's very good to keep in mind. But first, as we are in the midst of war with the Ukraine, we've asked Archbishop Boris Gudziak, who is the Ukrainian Catholic Archbishop uh, of Philadelphia. He will give us the latest in the situation there and his own personal reflections on how it affects people of faith in the Ukraine and and what we can expect if Russia does in fact succeed. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Boris.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the great ministry that you uh, develop and and serve. And thank you for bringing the plight of the people of Ukraine and the church in Ukraine to the attention of your audience.
0: Well, you know, we can only imagine what you must be feeling and other other Ukrainians uh, living outside Ukraine with family members there, because we are watching um, these terrible videos, these terrible images of, you know, what's the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. And uh, people being killed right and left, many more hundreds, I think, than we know of. I think the, the casualties are probably much higher than are being reported just from watching the terrible effect of the of the shelling and the bombing and um what's it like from your perspective watching this horrible experience happening to your countrymen
1: it's a very strange thing it's shocking it's senseless uh it's surreal um i was in ukraine in the first half of february uh as the tension was really rising um I went in as, you know, American diplomats began leaving uh, at the beginning of the month. And then by the time I was leaving, uh, you know, just about all diplomats were leaving from, from Kiev, from most countries, and Americans were, were told leave immediately. I left because I had to be in Rome for meetings scheduled months ago. At the Oriental Congregation, and, and uh, an encounter with the Holy Father. Uh, but uh, you know, you couldn't, you could, it couldn't believe it, even though you knew uh, that the country on three sides, like a horseshoe, is surrounded by uh, two hundred thousand troops, and we Ukrainians have, you know, three hundred and fifty years of uh, history of, of Russian occupation. Uh, Russian, you know, military violence, uh, even genocidal waves. So, you know, we don't doubt that it's possible. And, you know, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, every time there's a Russian occupation on a part of the country where the Ukrainian Church is serving, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church gets liquidated as a visible structure. It might take a year or two. It might take, a, you know, 10 years or, or 20. But sooner or later, when we are on land under Russian control, uh, we're eliminated. You and said- so there's there's no naivete mm-hmm. about this. But it still is unbelievable in the 21st century. You know, this is one of the first cases, really, where a war is fully wired. You know, everybody's kind of seeing it globally, instantly. Um, and this is making a big difference. Uh, I think it, you know, it, it helps the victim when the evil and brutal deeds of of the invader are, are so quickly shown and seen uh, by people throughout the world.
0: Uh, Your Excellency, you said the word senseless referring to this war, and I maybe this is a very big question and you can't answer it in a minute or two, but can you attempt to make sense of this for our listeners? Because many of us are sitting over here in the West without that historical perspective that you have, that understanding of the interactions sure. between Ukraine and Russia over the centuries. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of why exactly is Putin advancing on the Ukraine?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's the most important question, you know, for people who want to understand um, what's going on. And uh, it's only slowly that uh, the media is getting to the heart of the problem. Most media, for months, and many, you know, experts, uh, they kind of parrot Putin's line. Mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart, and we were humiliated, and then, you know, NATO received the former Soviet satellite countries into membership, and we're threatened by NATO and the United States, and, uh, you know, so we have to invade Ukraine. (laughs) Uh, And somewhere, you know, the question is, okay, first of all, NATO is a defensive alliance, uh, and it's not you know, it's not threatening Russia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Ukraine has never invaded Russia. Um, In the the real reason is, there's really two main reasons. One which is often stated by the media, and that is that there's nostalgia for empire. Putin said 15 years ago that The collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in in the 20th century. And he wants to rebuild an empire, his empire. Mm -hmm. It's it's the sin of Adam. You know, Adam grabs for something, you know, the fruit, the -hmm. forbidden fruit, and he wants to appropriate it. That's a basic human sin. Human nature grabs for itself, whereas God's gesture is an open hand of giving. Mm -hmm. sharing the father to the son in the holy spirit and we're created to be givers and we're created to be open and generous and be in good relationship and sin is grabbing things for yourself Mm -hmm. whether they're physical or you know moral or whatever uh, it's human nature, kind of turning in on itself. It's the ego turning in on itself instead of being in in communion. So you know the the worst the worst case scenario is when despots, you know, want more and more and more. I mean, there's eleven time zones in Russia. How much more do you need? Uh, but you know that sin when somebody makes a, a contract with the devil you you lose you lose all moral perspective. And Putin as a young man became a KGB agent. That was a moral sellout. The KGB was a cynical, repressive organization that, you know, otherwise normal people in in the Soviet Union feared. You didn't want to talk to anybody that, you know, was in the KGB, who you know, whose wife worked in the KGB, her husband worked in the KGB. That was it was like the Gestapo. You know, mm-hmm. these are people that are dangerous, and and they're responsible for genocides uh, over you know the decades of the Soviet Union. And this is what Putin joined. So you sell your soul. It's a Faustian thing. You're you're now going to do what you're told, and that might include killing people. And that that. Uh, that ultimate, uh, or maybe it's not the ultimate decision, because I hope he, I pray for his conversion. But that decision is there, and he reiterates it. He, he, you know, he glorifies uh, the KGB and the Federal uh, Security Bureau, the FSB. Uh, it's you know, Russian version. Uh, he tries to whitewash uh, the history of the Soviet Union and its its genocides. And so he wants to recreate it. But really, the most important reason why he's attacking specifically Ukraine is that because Ukraine is a big country. Apparently now they say there's about 44 million people. In, in 30 years ago, it had 20, 52 million people. Um, and Ukraine... Has developed come out of the Soviet Union, you know, 30 and a half years ago, uh, as a democracy. It elects presidents. There have been six presidents in in, in um, 30 years. In Russia, no president loses an election, you know. <laughs> uh, it's got freedom of the press. In Russia, journalists are killed, like Anna Politkovskaya, one mm-hmm. famous case. Uh, there's you know. Parties win elections, lose elections, have majorities, lose majorities. In Russia, there's no opposition. Uh, in opposition, those who are really opposition uh, politicians can be killed. They can be shot in the, in the center of Moscow demonstratively, they can be poisoned. They can, uh, you know, be, opposition people can be killed by r- radioactive stuff that only a few countries produce he's not even hiding Putin isn't even hiding the fact that he's assassinating these people in London or you know in other places other countries or within his country and in Ukraine you know there's freedom of a religion there's about a hundred denominations and everybody you know is on the same playing field not like the Russian Orthodox Church which is wedded to the state um and you know there's toleration I mean 70 by seventy percent, Ukrainians elected a Jewish man as president. Mm-hmm uh, with Zelensky, Jewish background. You've got Muslim Tatars in Crimea. That's the native population of Crimea who were deported in in the forties to uh, Siberia and Ukraine welcomed them back and these Muslim Tatars are great Ukrainian patriots they're getting
3: Your Excellency you, you made a point earlier about how this is sort of the first time a conflict like this is playing out in in lifetime and that's been the thing I've been struck by to see the way the role that social media has played and you know you mentioned the the prime minister who's um you know basically been posting videos to social media of himself in fighting in the streets and you know one thing that I've been struck by is uh the way so many of these different faith leaders, you know, I just saw the um, like the chief rabbi, you know, said, I'm going to stay here for the Jews who can't flee. And, and so many priests, um, posting pictures of people worshiping underground. And, you know, what is your sense of, you know, the morale of, of the faithful, both, you know, those who are in communion with the Catholic church and, and, and the various other, you know, religious groups that, um, you undoubtedly have, uh, relationships with what is their, what is their morale and what's, you know, the, the perspective of, of the Christians who are, and and the other faith groups who are there and sort of left behind or trapped or, or, or purposefully staying for one reason or another.
1: Many people are staying in place, uh, uh, his beatitude, Sitoslav Shuchuk, the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, he's in Kyiv. He's moving around because the place of his residence is is dangerous. And I know other bishops that are on the move, kind of uh, looking for safe houses uh, because of the ja- the danger. Um, but uh, uh, there's the whole range of possible human experiences. You know, when bombs are falling, you can't but be afraid you can't mm-hmm, but uh, be apprehensive and so you know many refugees are moving there's a half a million people that have left the country and by some estimates there might be as many as seven million refugees this is going to be the biggest refugee crisis of europe in you know since world war ii um but others are staying uh uh Clergy are going down into the, you know, these bunkers and, and into the met, metro, the subways where people are huddling and they're, um, you know, praying with the people. Uh, just two hours ago, I was talking with his Beatitudes at the Slough and all of a sudden said, sorry, I got to go because the siren's on. You know, we have to run into the, you know, to the basement where, where he was located. Um, I talked to another bishop, uh 10 minutes before we spoke uh, in Kharkiv, which is being bombarded. And he said uh, today he had to move because his, his where he lives was on the side of the city, which is being hit by all kinds of rocket fire. So uh, people are staying. Uh, 100,000 volunteers have, have joined the territorial defense units. In each town and city, uh, citizens are... Uh, joining these units, the the, the the government is arming them, and, and they're defending their neighborhoods. Uh, so whether it's spiritually, morally, or militarily, you know, the country is showing incredible uh, resistance. Nobody expected it. And most of all, Putin didn't expect it.
0: What do you think, Archbishop, about the response of the West? Um, maybe you can tell us what you think of the response from the Vatican, but then also countries in the West, like the United States and, and other Europe, and European countries?
1: Well, uh, the U.S. response and that of Western Europe has been slow. Uh, and I mean slow because, you know, the writing was on the walls eight years ago when Putin uh, invaded uh, Ukraine on two sides and annexed part of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, there were sanctions. There were slaps on the wrist. And Putin saw the West and the U.S. as weak. And so he started building up his army and this, this, uh, this invasion, massive invasion, comprehensive invasion, has been long in planning. Um, and so uh, um, the uh, response was weak and slow. It's much better now, but it needs to be stronger. It's only, you know, the world is kind of waking up to war in Ukraine, which has been going on for eight years. Uh, it's, it's now, you know, becoming catastrophic, uh, but it was very bad. There were two million uh, refugees from, from that eastern front and from Crimea over these last eight years. I mean, Ukrainians have been suffering in a tremendous way. The, the currency lost two-thirds of its value in 2014. People lost two-thirds of the value of their salaries and of their savings. So uh, Ukrainians think that the West has you know, often abandoned them, and they're, they're saying, listen, we're dying, we're fighting for what will be a war that will extend into Europe. Why don't you at least help us? If you're, you know, if, if you can't help us, you know, with your forces, help us with instruments.
3: Your Excellency, there's, you know, continued talk of, you know, there'll be dialogue between Putin and Zelensky and, but I think also a sense of, you know, um, the other, each side is not going to see, you know, eye to eye with the other. Do you see any prospect for for peace or do you see any sort of outcome where this could resolve without cascading into a larger scale European conflict engulfing other countries and you know, what do you see as some of the what's the best case realistic outcome?
1: Well you know imagine at a bus stop there's uh, a lady that's beating getting beat up by a hoodlum and people on the side say why don't you negotiate it? I mean, what kind of negotiation? Mm -hmm. The hoodlum has been lying. He made fools of, you know, some politicians. Uh, The president of France, you know, came uh, two weeks ago to Moscow. Uh, He was treated as a boy and he left saying, oh, we've come to an agreement and, you know, we're, you know, there, there won't be an invasion. And then before his plane landed, you know, the Russians said, no, 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 we didn't say anything of the sort they lie this invasion was carefully planned for months there was no question that it would occur and the question is how do you negotiate with you know cynical liars who can kill kids their own kids there's there's 5000 russian soldiers that have been killed in 5 days for what reason this is a great tragedy for the russian people
0: Yes, yes, it is. It's a great cra- tragedy for them, too. And there are many Russians that are that are very unhappy with this aggression from Russia into Ukraine. It's very sad what's happening. But I, I think one thing that it's ha- a good effect that it's having, it's it's concentrating the attentions of the world on something that's been going on for some time. Um, that we've too many people have decided to ignore in favor of concentrating on very really silly things, and I'm thinking right now in America on our on the politics of woke and and all these silly sort of cultural, not just silly but damaging cultural things that we chase uh, as a people. Um, do you think that this uh, terrible conflict in, in in the Ukraine will help to focus people's attention on what's important?
1: i hope so you know it works for me we we begin a great lent today uh the eastern rites begin on monday and you know it this this is gonna this is gonna be a special lent for me uh you know i'm thinking of the sacrifice and deprivations of the, the the men on the front uh i'm thinking of the people being bombed in cities i'm thinking of the Hundreds of thousands of people that today are on the road, families, you know, mothers with breast feeding their children, and they're in this freezing cold, standing for you know, twenty four hours trying to get to the you know cross the border. We we have many things that we should value. America is a great country. It has many weaknesses. One problem is that you know a lot of faithful uh, conservative Catholics think Putin is a defender of traditional values not realizing that russia has the highest abortion rate in the world one of the highest alcoholism suicide divorce rates in the world it's a thoroughly corrupt country and this guy has been power for 22 years
2: mm-hmm.
1: and people say this guy's a defender of traditional values he's a killer mm-hmm. he's a sociopath and uh, you know i i talked to cardinal sarah Uh, last week and he's you know a very holy man and he said I think Putin defends traditional values and I said your eminence we were having coffee together and you know standing up I almost dropped my cup and that is what disinformation does. Mm-hmm. And that is what you, what you are doing, why it is so important.
0: Archbishop, what can our listeners do besides joining our prayers to all the prayers of the people across the world who are praying for the end of this, for the end of suffering in Ukraine, and even for the end of suffering of the, the Russians, the poor Russian soldiers who are being thrown into this fray? Um, what else can we do? What would you recommend so to us?
1: I would. I, let's not skip over that so quickly. What else with prayer? Prayer moves <laughs> mountains. Uh, the Soviet Union fell apart without a war. Fifteen countries came out of it. Our churches became free. My church, our Ukrainian Catholic Church, became free after for being for 43 years the biggest illegal church in the world. And uh, that was through prayer. That was through grace. That's right. That was a miracle. It was the act of God. So pray yes. and pray and pray. A Second, information. Everything we were saying about. There's so much disinformation. Putin is is. Attacking Ukraine because Ukraine has the virus of democracy. It has virus of freedom. It has the virus of transparency. Not in a perfect state. Ukraine has its own problem, but the U.S. also has many problems in its political system. But he doesn't want any of it in his autocratic kleptocratic oligarchy, where where a few people control everything, and uh, you know the rest of the population must toe the line. And the third thing. Is to uh, help in the humanitarian crisis. There's going to be millions of people that are going to be homeless, millions, Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're on the move, and it's the winter, and uh, they need our help.
0: That's right. That's a good wake-up call for us. It's um, it's it's going to be a tremendous even even if everything stops today on this very day. Uh, just recovering from what's been going on, the terrible devastation in the Ukraine. There's billions of
1: dollars of infrastructure that have been destroyed. Uh, You know, electric stations, uh, uh, gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines, schools, hospitals, kindergartens, Mm -hmm. roads, bridges, high-rise apartment buildings. It's incredible, you know, how quickly with with a demonic intention how we can destroy how we can kill and how long it takes to give life to heal and to build
0: well, Archbishop, I can't thank you enough for putting this all uh, out, just laying it out for us in such a way that uh, really helps us understand and helps us, uh, especially understand how important our prayers are and how important the defense of the Ukraine is to to the world in general, not just to Ukrainians but to all of us. So, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us.
1: God bless you and all all the listeners, and I'm glad glad to help in the next. Days and weeks to come because this is far from over.
0: Every morning the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media Roundup at the Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And next, we turn to two important news items. President Biden named his Supreme Court pick just last week. Her name is Katanji Brown Jackson. She's a native of Miami, like me. And in fact, when she was in high school, she must have been my neighbor because she went to my local public school. I went to the local Catholic girls school. Ed Whalen of the Ethics and Public Policy Center will be joining me with a look at her record and what this pick might mean for the court. But first, I'm so glad to have my co-hostess and TCA colleague Maureen Ferguson back with me to discuss the shocking Women's Health Protection Act that uh, puts Roe v. Wade on steroids, as Maureen likes to say, and it certainly does do that. And uh, we're relieved to find out that the bill did not pass in the Senate. So thank you for joining me today, Maureen. I'm so glad to be joining you, Gracie. I wanted to have you on because you are the expert on all these legislative uh, shenanigans that go on in D.C. You always know exactly what to make of them and what they mean. And so the big thing that happened this week was um, that, the, that this horrible bill that was up before the Senate did not make it. It did not pass. So tell us about this bill. Tell us why it's horrible and why it's good it didn't pass, but what it really means in the big picture. So it's great that the
4: bill didn't pass, but it really just got snagged on a procedural hurdle, and we haven't heard the last of this bill. And what I find so disheartening and shocking is that when you think about all of the problems going on in the world today, when you think of the suffering of the Ukrainian people, and yet the United States Senate returned to Washington this week, and the very first order of business, the thing they thought it most important to do at their very first vote on Monday evening, was to vote on the Women's Health Protection Act, which I would describe as Roe v. Wade on steroids. This bill, the women's the so-called women's health protection act would override every pro-life law in every state, everywhere in the country. So it would strike down even very sort of bipartisan consensus measures like parental consent for teenagers trying to get an abortion, waiting periods, informed consent that requiring, requires ultrasounds, taxpayer funding of abortion, limits on late-term abortion, even conscience protections for doctors and nurses who don't want to participate in abortions. Marisa. The federal bill would strike down every single state law in the nation. So that
0: so the federal government has the powers through a bill like this to do that. It can say to the state of Florida, for instance, girls who are 13 and under can have abortions without their parents being called. and if that's a law that the, the state the citizens of the state of Florida feel is, is is a good and and conscientious law that should be placed around abortion.
4: That's right. It's the supremacy clause that a federal law can supplant state laws like this. So this is a federal bill that would override every pro-life state law in the nation. It's incredibly radical. And of course, the abortion lobby is pushing it because they fear the Supreme Court in June in the Dobbs case may overturn Roe versus Wade. And then we know that about half of the states would move to protect unborn children. So that is why the abortion lobby is pushing so hard. For this radical and extreme bill. And, you know, I even think of, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the case in of Pennsylvania, because Pennsylvania has, uh, it's called the Abortion Control Act, and they have a limit on abortions past 24 weeks. Now, we all remember the just absolutely ghastly case of the serial killer, the abortionist, Dr. Kermit Gosnell. Now, one of the things that helped put him in jail was Pennsylvania's 24-week limit on abortion, because he was flagrantly disobeying that law and performing late-term abortions. Well, under this bill, this federal bill, the Women's Health Protection Act, Dr. Gossnell could not have been prosecuted for those late-term abortions. So, I mean, that's just one example of how radical this this bill is. So, you and I know and our listeners know that Americans in general,
0: even when they call themselves pro-choice, they're not pro-these kinds of completely radical, unfettered abortion ideas that are plugged into this bill, right? Like most 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 people, even when they call themselves pro-choice, think that there should be regulations that protect the women having abortions from terrible operators like Gosnell, that protect girls from being abused, that protect girls from being aborted just for the crime, quote-unquote, of being a girl, as in sex selective abortion. So how did the Democrats... Or how did that, with their pro-abortion lobby, how did they think that this was making any sense to the greater American public and the way the greater American public thinks about abortion? Or did they just not care?
4: Uh, I guess they just don't care because the the laws that would be Uh, struck down under this federal bill are laws that have 70, 80% approval in public opinion polls. Mm -hmm. Most people are opposed to most abortions, and most people want more regulation on abortion. They support laws like parental consent, waiting periods, informed consent, because most people have that visceral reaction against abortion. Most people know that baby has a beating heart. People don't like abortion, but yet the Democratic Party has become so fully captured by the abortion lobby that they insisted that the Democratic Party cast this vote as their first order of business coming back to Washington when we're watching the atrocities in Ukraine. And I just just find that contrast so shocking and disheartening when we see these images of the Ukrainian people fighting to get their babies across the border into Poland. I saw one father interviewed this morning. He was at a checkpoint outside his town with his Molotov cocktails and and he said, you know, I'm standing here at this checkpoint because my child and my wife are back there in the city, so I'm here to stop any Russian troops coming in. So so when you think of the heroic efforts of the Ukrainian people to save their children's lives, and the Democratic Party here in the U.S. is fighting for more abortion, more late-term abortion even, it's just, shocking, disheartening, and it's real evidence that the Democratic Party has been totally captured by the radical left. It's just very hard to understand. And almost every single Democrat voted for the bill, the only exception is Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Thank God he's there to stand up to his party courageously. One of the saddest votes in my book was that of Pennsylvania's Senator Bob Casey Jr., who used to be a principled defender of the unmarked born but he's now totally flip-flopped and embraced abortion as a sacred as a sacred right really and when you know for our listeners who are familiar with that name uh, a lot of people are well aware that Bob Casey Jr ran for the senate and won largely on the name of his father Bob Casey Sr who was a heroic defender of the unborn in the Democratic Party he was the governor of Pennsylvania he fought for that abortion control act that i referred to earlier he fought for that 24 week limit on abortion to put these Serial murderers like Dr. Kermit Gosnell in jail. And yet Casey Jr. has now fully sold out to the abortion lobby. And it was just utterly heartbreaking to watch him cast an "I" vote uh, in the Senate this week on this bill.
0: Maureen, the mainstream media runs cover for these Democrats who are voting in such a radical way that's so divorced from the way real Americans feel. Um, but do you think that they're running enough cover for for this kind of total dissociation from their voters on, on a piece of, uh, on something so important as putting Roe v. Wade on steroids, as you say?
4: I don't know. You know, a lot of Democrats seem to recognize that the, cult, that the party has gone too far, that the culture war radicalism has really become the Democrats defining agenda. And some people like New York's former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, have been warning the party, but the party leadership doesn't seem to be listening. So we'll just have to keep our eye on this bill and, um, you know, pray that it gets that it remains stuck on this procedural hurdle. Well, we'll pray along
0: with you, Maureen. And thank you for giving us um, that wonderful overview of the bill. And we'll have you back on if, if, if it resurrects and we have to think about it again. I hope it doesn't. So thank you, Maureen. Great to join you, Gracie. And next, we turn to Ed Whalen from the Ethics and Public Policy Center on the new Biden Supreme Court nomination. Welcome to the show, Ed.
5: Thank you, Gracie.
0: Thank you for coming. Uh, it's it's uh, wonderful to hear from an expert on how to think about this new Supreme Court nominee from the Biden administration. Many of us, me included, haven't been paying a lot of attention because of the terrible things that are happening over over in the Ukraine. And uh, obviously, our attention is very focused on that. But this is a very important thing here in, in America for our future and on so many levels. So if we could talk about Ketanji Brown-Jackson, can we first talk about, if you don't mind, the fact that he chose her out of a very limited pool of, of applicants by specifying her race and sex? Can you tell us what that means as far as the perception of, of her qualifications might be?
5: Well, sure. During the uh, dem- his Democratic campaign for president, Joe Biden promised that his first Supreme Court nominee would be a black woman. This is a promise that South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn extracted from him at a debate in South Carolina. You know what this means, as you pointed out, is he has excluded lots of candidates from consideration, you know, arguably some 90 plus, 95 plus percent, 97 percent right at the outset. Look, Democrat demographic, considerations frequently come into play in Supreme Court nominations. I think that's inevitable. This is distinct from the usual case in that usually a president doesn't announce in advance that he's going to look only to a certain set of folks. Ronald Reagan did that back in 1980, saying his first nominee, or actually one of his first nominees would be a woman. You know, race and gender have uh, different stature constitutionally. Um, racial discrimination is generally viewed as more suspect, is re- requiring uh, heightened scrutiny to be justified. But in any I think uh, the, the salient political point is that the American public seems not to have liked this pledge. And it's notable that at the White House announcement last Friday, Joe Biden made no mention at all of his pledge and, and instead did his best to emphasize uh, Judge Jackson's uh, credentials.
0: Well, I guess that's good. But it leaves the American public wondering what's next. Like, what's what's the next set aside for the Supreme Court? I guess we'll find out if the Democrats keep choosing people, right? So keep nominating people if that if, that's, if that does happen in the next year or two.
5: Yes. Well, I mean, the uh, diversity considerations have become you know front and center in judicial selections on the uh, Democratic side. You see that with the uh, lower court selections that um, Joe Biden has made so far. I mean he has, he has delivered overwhelmingly on his promise the, the, the numbers are, are, are rather amazing and uh, you know it's a, it's a separate argument whether diversity considerations warrant such weight or whether they instead play into a concept of the judiciary as, as though judges are representatives of certain constituencies rather than folks depth in the law, selected to neutrally decide what the law means and to apply it. It
0: does seem that we are playing harder and harder the identity politics, at, at least as driven by the Democrats, and to me it's a very sad thing to see the, the highest court in the land uh, brought into it now this way. It seems that that it that the, the Supreme Court will lose credibility with, with the majority of Americans who don't judge people on, strictly on the basis of their skin and sex.
5: Well, I think there is that danger, and as with race preferences generally, there's the danger that people will assume uh, uh perhaps mistakenly that uh Ketanji brown jackson would never have been picked um but for this commitment mm-hmm. as my uh teenage daughter said when i told her about biden's pledges she, she, she said why do you do that why don't you just go ahead and, 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 and select her
3: mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> now, uh, rather
5: uh, now you know that's there, 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 there are you know arguably advantages of not being so blatant about what you're doing but uh no identitarian politics are huge on on the left and uh you know they have no substitute for judicial philosophy other than uh, the whole living, so-called living constitutionalist approach of just reading the Constitution to mean whatever you want it to mean. So instead, they've, they've, they've shifted their focus to um, these uh, to put great emphasis on these uh, diversity considerations.
0: So in any case, they must be very feeling very confident about her, about the way that she will that she will march into her position as a replacement for Justice Breyer, um, and and support some of these ideas on the left, uh, like identitarianism, and you know the pro-choice, uh, to the nth degree, uh, to name just two. What do you think? Is that Are they feeling pretty confident that she will make that a great replacement for Justice Pryor? They must be.
5: Oh, oh sure. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, l- lawyers with a um, progressive view of, of what the Constitution ought to mean are a, a, dime, and, a dime a dozen in our uh-huh. legal culture, and she's surely been vetted carefully um, to make sure that she doesn't have any un- unwelcome views. So, you know, there's every reason to think she'll be, um, uh, you know, probably even the Justice is left on, 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 on those matters.
0: Hmm. But her her judicial uh, record is, is rather low, at as, as least as far, or small, I should say, um, at least as far as her decisions on the D.C. Court of Appeals, for instance? Well, she's been on the
5: D.C. Circuit for only a year, so the the record there is very thin. She before that, she was a district judge for some eight years, and she has uh, lots of opinions from that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, district court opinions uh, often are very constrained by precedent and very focused on, uh, you know, deciding uh, motions for summary judgment. And uh, I, I, you know, uh, with a few examples aside, I can't say um, that you can really discern um, much in the way of judicial philosophy um, or ideology. Um, from those opinions, she did have a, a couple, uh, two or three high-profile opinions, very, very long opinions uh, during the Trump administration, where uh, she seemed to be auditioning for the Supreme Court by uh, delivering uh, defeats to the Trump administration. Um, some of which uh, were um, you know, were were reversed by um, DC Circuit panels that included liberal judges. Uh, so, um, look, there's every every reason to think she'll be, um, you know, she'll she'll be a, a progressive justice.
0: What about her stance on religious liberty? What do we know about her in that sense? Well, we
5: don't know much. Um, she actually uh, was, for a time, a member of uh, an advisory board of a uh, Baptist school that proudly proclaimed on his website orthodox moral beliefs on uh, marriage, sexuality, and, and life. Now, she disclaimed any familiarity with those views uh, at her D.C. Circuit hearing, uh, she distanced herself uh, from them. But, uh, look we heard when she uh, when she made her own comments uh, at the announcement ceremony last Friday she gave her thanks to God and spoke in, in uh, ter- terms of faith mm-hmm. so I would like to think that she comes from a, um, a background that's friendly to faith and that she's not going to be aggressively uh, secularist uh, Justice Breyer for whom she clerked was sometimes somewhere in the middle on matters of, of, of law and religion so this this uh, this you know, could be an area where she is not way out on the far left.
0: How do you think Republicans, uh, during her confirmation sharing, hearing, how should they uh, question her? What should be their, their general, if you were running it, what, how, how would you manage it?
5: Well, I think their general approach should be what they did uh, during the Sotomayor and Kagan processes, which is focus on judicial philosophy. Ask um, her questions about that, and be ready to vote against her um, when they don't get satisfactory answers. Uh, look, uh, you know, Joe Biden back in 2005 threatened to filibuster uh, um, what would have been uh, the person who would have been the first African American uh, female justice if she had been nominated, Janice Rogers Brown. Mm. And so he's uh, he's shown by his own example that of of course you can oppose someone on the grounds of judicial philosophy and 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 not be uh, labeled uh, racist or sexist for doing so. So I think uh, Republican senators should, you know, engage in a civil, uh, dignified inquiry and certainly not descend into the politics of personal destruction that we've seen uh, 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 Democrats uh, resort to in the past. And, um, you know, I think we'll have a fairly quiet hearing after which she will very likely be confirmed. But, you know, the the goal is that we advance the understanding on the part of the American public about what, what, what judging is all about. And that's not what, uh, you know, Joe Biden thinks it is.
0: And what kind of time frame are we looking at? For this whole process, I think you'll see a
5: hearing uh, either before April or or in early April with uh, uh, confirmation, assuming nothing surprising happens either uh before the senate's uh easter break or right after it
0: okay well thank you ed thank you so much for all your insights on this it's a it's a great topic i i think we should all be paying a lot lots of attention even though again our attention can be frozen somewhere else right now and thank you for joining me
5: Thank you, Gracie.
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
2: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel as we journey with Jesus into the desert at the beginning of the Lenten season. Most people have no desire at all to go to the desert, certainly for no more than a brief visit. At a spiritual level, however, we should always have a great love for the desert because the desert is, is what helps us to understand the 40-day pilgrimage of Lent, which we join and imitate Jesus there and ponder the fruits of what he did. Every Lent, the same Holy Spirit whom St. Luke tells us led Jesus into the desert, wants to guide us into the desert with him. Lent is meant to help us recapitulate Christ's 40 days away from everything, so that we, apart from distractions, can focus on who we are, on a relationship with God and others, and with Christ's help, can confront and overcome the way the devil seeks to distort those relations in that image. To go into the desert, however, is increasingly difficult for people today. We're so connected that if we're out of cell phone range, we can easily feel lost. Although the Lord is not calling us all physically to go out into the Arabah, he is calling us to the state of the desert, Removing ourselves as much as we can from distractions, from the television, from computer, radio, the newspaper, the various things that may be fine in themselves, but can crowd our lives with noise so that we can't hear God and crowd our lives with clutter so that we can't see him. The first temptation we face each Lent is to refuse to go into the desert with Christ, to think that our Lent can be complete if, for example, all we do is give up booze and sweets. The first big hurdle for us is to hear Christ's voice from the desert saying, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. The next lesson we need to grasp is what's supposed to be the fruit of that time in the desert. That leads us to this Sunday's Gospel. It's a particularly special scene because the only way St. Luke and St. Matthew would have known about it would have been if Christ had told it to the disciples himself. No one else was there. The Lord must must have opened up his heart to them about this seminal moment of his hidden life, which occurred immediately after he was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the huge 15 by 35 mile desert between the mountain of Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, so that Jesus could pray to his father about the public ministry he was about to start. He prayed and fasted for an incredible 40 days, which obviously would have left him physically weak and famished. It was at this very moment of physical weakness that the devil came to tempt him. Much like God the Father had once allowed Job to be tested, the same Father allowed Jesus' son to be tempted. In the temptations Jesus suffered and later described, the devil brought out in a pristine form the types of temptations Christ would undergo in his public ministry and each of us undergoes in our life. By focusing on how Christ responded, We, too, can learn how to receive God's mercy so that we might be able to react as Jesus did. The first temptation was aimed right at Jesus' tremendous hunger after 40 days of eating nothing. If you are the Son of God, the devil chortled, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. When the Israelites were in the desert, Satan successfully tempted them to grumble to God to feed them. Satan was tempting Jesus to recapitulate the Israelites' lack of trust in God. But Jesus would have nothing of it. Jesus had come to save people, to feed their most important hunger, the hunger of their soul. And Satan was trying to induce him, as Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen used to say, to become a baker rather than a savior. To feed people's physical hunger would be a great way to win a crowd become popular. Because hunger is the most basic human need. And the devil was tempting Christ to bribe others to follow him. But Jesus himself was already living off a greater source of food. He was preparing to train us to seek this same celestial nutrition. Man doesn't live on bread alone, he said, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This same insight he passed under the crowds when they were following him to have their stomachs satiated. Do not work for the food that perishes, he said in Capernaum, but for the food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. In the second temptation, the devil presented Jesus with a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and said, to you I will give their glory and all this authority if you will worship me. Jesus was about to announce that his kingdom was at hand, but that kingdom was going to come about not through pride and satanic worship, but through humility in the cross. The father of lies was proposing a shortcut, another way, an easier way. I'll give it all to you if you fall down and worship me. The the devil, you remember, had gotten the Israelites to succumb to this temptation and worship him in a golden calf rather than to trust in the God with whom Moses was speaking on the mountain. But he failed with Jesus, who said to him, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. The devil likewise tempts us with the pursuit of power, privilege, prestige, and profit to seek to achieve something worldly by compromising our relationship with God and his moral law, to serve the ruler of this world rather than the one true God. Jesus told his disciples about this second struggle he faced so that we could learn from him that and how we're called to worship the Lord our God and serve him alone. In the third temptation, of the devil tried to seduce Jesus to test God the Father. Misapplying Psalm 92, he said, Throw yourself down from this pinnacle, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. The devil had succeeded in getting the Israelites to test God while they were in the desert, to complain that Moses had brought them there to kill them and their children of thirst. But Jesus didn't succumb to that temptation. He replied, it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the temptation to be presumptuous with God, to do things that will force God's hand into protecting us no matter what. The devil's always trying to get us to recreate a relationship with God on our terms rather than God's, To do something reckless, and then when God doesn't seem to respond to that situation because that reckless behavior harms us, the devil tries to use it to divide us even further from God. Jesus passed on to his disciples his response to the devil's temptation so that we could make it our own. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Rather than presumptuously throwing ourselves down from precipices, Lent is the time in which we trustingly throw ourselves up into God's outstretched, merciful arms. The last line of this Sunday's Gospel says that the devil subjected Jesus to every test, but Jesus never succumbed. In the letter to the Hebrews, we learn that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet never sinned. But Jesus is more than sympathetic. He went into the desert for 40 days to be tempted, to show us the way to overcome temptation by imitating him and his responses. One last point. Every Lent, the Church, based on Jesus' words, proposed for us three ways to grow in strength against temptation, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. It calls us to enter into Jesus' prayer, his fasting, and his self-giving. As the war in Ukraine continues, conscious that diabolical evils like the Russian aggression are only expunged, as Jesus taught, by prayer and fasting. We're all called to pray as if life depends on it, because many lives do. We need to fast like the people of Nineveh for mercy, like Moses on the mountain in reparation for the sins of Israel, like Queen Esther in petition to save her people. We need to sacrifice for those under attack and those who are now refugees through reliable international Catholic organizations like the Knights of Columbus in aid to the church in need. On Sunday, Jesus will remind us, man doesn't live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from God's mouth. He refused to change a stone into bread for the devil, but for us, his beloved flock, he will change bread into his own flesh and blood. He is the word that comes from the mouth of God. And this Sunday, he wants to put the word made flesh in our mouth. So we prepare to receive him. Let's ask him for the grace to live this 40 day calling to come apart from the crowds to a deserted place with him in the most holy and bold way possible and respond to his help to worship him, the Lord, our God, and serve him alone.